Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today we're sharing a few of our favorite moments from the last few years. This week it's all about grilling from Chicago to the Middle East. 
I mean, on this trip, we cooked in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> you know, we, we, we cooked we, in an abandoned sink. We cooked yeah. in a barrel. We cooked yeah. in a pit in the desert. In, uh, by the beach and the sand, yeah. you know, just anywhere. Really, the idea is that if you can start a fire somewhere and you've got like a bag of charcoal or wood, then, then you're good. Later in the show, we'll hear from Sri Packer and Itamar Srulevich about grilling traditions from across the Levant. First up, it's my interview with Meathead from 2020 about how to grill the perfect steak. Meathead, welcome back to uh, Milk Street. Oh, it's always good to talk to you, Christopher. So uh, how to cook a steak on a grill. You and I have discussed this before, and you basically disagree with everything most people think about how to cook a steak. Well, I learned to grill from my dad, and my dad learned to grill from his dad, and his dad learned to grill from his dad, and that's the way most people learn to grill. And when you sit down and you think about it and you apply some current science principles to it, you figure out that a lot of that stuff is just wrong. So let's start with a cut. Thin steaks, thick steaks, uh, which primal cut are we dealing with here? Well, you went right to the heart of the question right now. People always ask me how to cook a steak hot and fast or low and slow, and it all depends on how thick it is. Now, this is, you know, whenever you cook anything, indoors, outdoors, you're doing a physics experiment and you're doing a chemistry experiment. This is physics. The steak is 70% water. It takes time for heat to move from the outside of the steak to the inside of the steak. Whether it's in a grill or an oven or a frying pan, the heat, or it's actually better to think of it as energy, the energy is on the outside of the steak. And it heats up the outside of the steak, but it doesn't penetrate the steak. It's the heat that is stored in the outside of the steak that heats the inside of the steak. It moves from the outside to the center. So the warm air in your oven or in the grill is only cooking the outside of the steak. The outside of the steak is like a, uh, a capacitor or a battery. It just stores up the energy, and that moves to the center. So it takes longer for a thick steak to cook than a thin steak, obviously. But if it takes longer, then you need to dial down the temperature on a thick steak. Otherwise, you burn the outside before you reach the ideal temperature on the inside. A medium-rare steak, which we know for a fact is most tender at 130 to 135 degrees, that's medium-rare, you can tell with a digital thermometer right spot on. You don't have to cut into it. You don't have to poke it with your finger. You can stick it with a digital thermometer and know precisely. Well, no, okay. I, you know, I like to argue with people. Me too. Yeah, I know. I've noticed that. That's why you're on the show. Uh, I've used a digital thermometer on steaks for years. But the thing I'm, I'm not sure about is, you know, I know I pick it up with tongs. I insert the thermometer horizontally. But I got to tell you, if it's half an inch one way or a quarter inch another way, I might do five readings and get six results. Right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of hard. Yeah. So how do you effectively determine the internal temperature of a steak? Well, you want to look for the geographic center, but it may take more than one stick and you may have to do a little averaging in your head. It's not going to bleed to death. This is not a balloon. You stick it with a thermometer, it doesn't go (laughs) and deflate. So don't worry about sticking it. So, okay, so a flying steak would be cooked maybe differently than a two-inch sirloin or something. So let's assume you have a thick-cut steak. Now what? Okay, 
keep the temp down. I, I, I like to tell people when you're learning to grill, learn to manage two temperatures, a hot zone where you have radiant heat. Directly above that radiant heat is where you're going to sear. And the, the other zone is not hot. There's no heat directly below the meat. And that's going to cook the food by convection airflow. And you want to get that to around 225. And if you can nail 225, whether it's windy, hot, cold, rainy, you're in control because cooking is all about temperature control and it's harder outdoors than it is indoors. So you're going to start your thick steak on the indirect zone where it's cooking by gentle convection airflow at about 225 and it's going to slowly warm from edge to edge at about the same rate. And what you're essentially doing now is you're cooking the inside of the meat and you're gonna bring it up to just a little below what your target temp is. If you want a perfect medium rare steak, 130 to 135, bring it up to about 125. And once it hits that, then you lift the lid and you move it over to the direct heat zone. Now you're cooking now by radiation. You're cooking with infrared radiation when you're directly above the energy source, and then you're going to flip it, and you're going to flip it. You're going to be the human rotisserie because you don't want to build up energy. You just want to cook the exterior of the steak. You already cooked the interior on the indirect side. Now you're cooking the exterior. You're going for dark brown mahogany edge to edge, bumper to bumper. Okay, so before you get the grill going, am I going to salt this meat and let it sit? In advance of cooking, you, you definitely want to salt your meat. Salt is the magic rock. Salt is just sodium and chloride, two little ions, and when they get on the surface of meat, they melt and they go to the center. Nothing else can penetrate. Um, garlic, sugar, the molecules are too large. They can't go more than a fraction of an inch, just into the little tiny cracks and crevices on the surface. But salt can actually go deep towards the center. And what salt does is it alters the structure of the protein and it helps it hold on to moisture. So it amplifies flavor and holds on to moisture. Salt is magic. It's the most important thing on your spice rack. So what about cuts? We didn't really talk about that in terms of what primal cut. Are you getting a, you know, like a New York strip steak, a shell steak? What are you getting? Well, you know, most real steak lovers will tell you the ribeye is their favorite steak, and there's good reason. I mean, it, it, it's the perfect blend of fat and, and protein, and uh, you, you get a really great juicy experience. The ribeye has actually two muscles. There's this round muscle that occupies most of the ribeye, and that's the longissimus dorsi, and it runs from the shoulder all the way to the hip. But there's this little curved muscle that wraps around the outside of it, and there's this thick layer of fat in between them. And that little curved muscle is the spinalis dorsi, or the rib cap. That is the best muscle on the animal. Um, the other steak I absolutely adore is the flank steak, which comes from underneath the animal, and it's a much tougher steak, but it's got so much flavor. And that baby, you wanna cook hot and fast. Get it right over the heat, and sear it, get it really dark, dark brown, maybe a little, little char on the surface and medium rare in the center. And that's a great steak. Meathead, thanks so much. Everything I wanted to know about steaks but was afraid to ask. Thanks. Oh, always fun talking to you, Christopher. Uh, let's get together and cook some steaks sometime. That sounds like a better idea. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> 
That was Meathead, founder of AmazingRibs.com, also author of The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. Over the years, Sarah Moult and I have answered dozens of questions about grilling. Here are a few of our favorites. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Albert Blakey. Hi, Albert. Where are you calling from? York, Pennsylvania. How can we help you today? Well, the question had to do with, would low-temperature grilling help with the grilling of whole fish? Because among the many things my wife and I agree on, we love a whole fish grilled, it's succulent, but it has nice, beautiful, crispy skin attached to the fish when you serve it. And time and again, as I'm trying to grill a fish, when I go to turn it, the skin sticks to the grill. And I rip the skin right off and, you know, continue to cook something that tastes good, but uh, <laughs> doesn't look as good. No, that's, that's, that's depressing. Familiar. Do you pat the fish very, very dry? Yes. Do you preheat the grill like crazy? Yes. One of the questions, though, is what temperature should you cook the fish on? And I think it's a good question about whether a low to medium heat for a whole fish, well-oiled on a perfectly clean grill, would mean it would stick less than if you got it on a pretty hot grill. Right. I don't know the answer to that. My guess is that's probably worth something testing. Are we going to ask Albert to go back to the grill? and try this out and try... Happy to. I mean, I would do what I just said for sure, but in terms of the actual temperature that you cook it at, I was going to say medium heat because what the fish has is the skin on it, and you want to get a sear. I found with chicken, if you put it over medium-low, it'll take more time, but the skin gets beautifully crisped over time. Just because you're using medium-low doesn't mean you don't get a crisp skin. You do. I would try medium-low, and see if right. that releases better. And I would guess it would. So, yeah, so Albert, will you try that out and let us know? Yeah. But either way, I say make sure the fish skin is dry and you oil it really well. I think there's one other thing, and that is the cleanliness of your grill grates. I've learned the hard way that when you're finished cooking, crank it up and clean the grill really right well then. right there. Because if you let it sit for a week and come back, right. it's going to be a real mess. I've learned that over the years myself. And I am, I'm sort of a, an apprentice Jedi when it comes to grilling. I don't use a thermometer. I'm more of a trust the force loop kind of guy and see how it's looking and see how it's smelling and then, you know, decide, is there a temperature? You know, and does it vary with the fish? Yes. Because bluefish is oily. And we love red snapper, for example. And, you know, does the density of yes, the fish true. flesh, I'm sure, has to have an effect. 120 in general is what I would look for. But if you have a fish like tuna steaks... Those will continue mm-hmm. to cook like crazy because they hold the heat when they come off. So I would cook those to a lower right. temperature. But I would say 115 to 120 is sort of where I would look for fish, something like that. And by the way, I think you ought to write the Jedi grilling cookbook, right? The Obi-Wan yes. barbecue handbook. Yes. May the grill force be with you. Yes. Albert, okay. take care. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thank Albert. you for your time. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Chris from Woodbury, New Jersey. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. How, how are you guys today? I'm pretty good. Uh, how can we help you? I actually had a question about spice rubs. Okay. I make this uh, spice rub. It's mostly consisting of brown sugar. Mm-hmm. And my issue is it tends to clump after about a day even in like a sealed container. It tends to clump a little bit more. Is there something I could do to stop that from actually happening? Is there something I could add to it? 
you can be like me and cheat. You can buy these white plastic containers, and on the inside of the top, it has a little pottery disc, and you soak mm. that in water for 20 minutes and then insert it into the top. And I keep brown sugar, which sounds pretty much most of what your spice rub is, in those containers in the fridge, and that stuff stays without clumping for a very long time. Uh-huh. That would be one thing you could do. Other people suggest putting slices of white bread in to absorb excess moisture. I found that doesn't work as well. So those little containers, they're also called sugar bears. You can buy them separately online. Again, soak them and uh, put them in with the sugar. You could use a different kind of sugar, a drier sugar like a palm sugar, coconut sugar. Some of that coconut sugar is very, very, it's almost like little pearls. My guess Mm -hmm. is that wouldn't clump up as much, but I would just buy one of those containers. They're six or seven bucks, and I don't know. I think they do a pretty good job. With these other sugar substitutes, will it actually change the flavor since it's not exactly brown sugar that I'm used to using? Palm sugar and coconut sugar are different. Yeah, turbinado, not so much. Uh, Absolutely. Well, try those, but uh, I think even if you're just storing brown sugar, you need to get those things anyway or, or some method for keeping it moist. I mean, the, the sandwich bread slices do work, but you have to keep replacing them. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, we're here to help. Give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. My name is Jenny. I'm from the Milwaukee area. I love Milwaukee. Yeah, so I have a question. I've watched, like, uh, some cooking shows and, you know, some famous chefs and, you know, other things from cooking classes. I've heard this a lot, to um, bring your steak out or bring your meat out and bring it to room temperature before you cook it. But the thing is, like, I've read an article by J. Kenji Lopez-Alt on SeriousEast.com And, like, he did a lot of work on this where you would, like, experiment. He took the meat out, and he would take the temperature of the meat. And it turns out that even it takes if you forever. have the meat out, it doesn't even go down that much. It doesn't even come down to room temperature. No, he's, um, he's right. Letting meat come up to temperature is complete, utter nonsense because it would take hours and hours. I mean, even with a steak, it's going to take a long time. But yeah. if you had a roast or something, you start on Monday, come back on Tuesday because it'll take that and long. And by then it will be <laughs> no it would, good anyway. It'll kill you. But there is something you can do, we've mentioned on this show before, to cook a steak, take it out of the fridge. I salt it uh, and put it on a rack on a half-sheet tray, baking tray. I do let it sit for a while just so like the salt hour. can penetrate. And then I put it in a 250 oven for 15 or 20 minutes, depending on the thickness of the steak, to bring it up to about 95 and then or 100 and then finish it in a skillet for a couple minutes aside or on a grill. That will bring, obviously, the meat up to temperature, but yeah. it also adds a lot of flavor and allows the salt to penetrate it, and you don't overcook the meat. Right, and the other well. thing is the meat will be the, you know, internally, yes. let's say you want it medium rare, it'll be medium rare basically from top to bottom, right. not just in the very center. But try that. The other thing is meat cooks from the outside in, so that's why heating it up very slowly so everything uh-huh. comes up to temperature slowly, and a quick sear at the end is really the best technique. Yeah, so you but you're that. right. Bringing things up to temperature by letting them sit on the countertop is a complete waste of time. Right. But where does 
that come from? Because, like, I hear that well, piece of advice everywhere. It probably came from me because I think I remember saying that sometime back in the 1980s. Yeah, you know, we so, know so much more now than yeah. we did back then. I'm the perpetrator of some misinformation as well. Jenny, so uh, you're absolutely right. Kenji's right. And uh, give the oven method a, a shot. Yeah, I, I approve of that. Mistake. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you so much. You're listening to a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we're grilling in the Middle East. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. 
we are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. I'm Christopher Kimball, and this is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's my interview with Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulovich, they're the husband and wife team behind the famous London restaurants Honey & Co., Honey & Smoke, and Honey & Spice. We had them on in 2021 to discuss their book, Chasing Smoke, for which they traveled around the Levant in search of the very best Middle Eastern grilling. Sarit and Itamar, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Most people in the States think about barbecue or grilling in very... American terms, which is big pieces of meat, right? Yeah. Your book is so different. Um, yeah. in, in fact, the whole notion of grilling is just an entirely different concept than how we would imagine it here. So could you just talk about fundamentally how grilling works in the Levant, I mean, around the Mediterranean? What's the basic concept? Because it's very different than here. It is very different. And I think, first of all, you have to come from this place of understanding that it's about an every day, every meal, every occurrence, and, and and kind of really casual. It's not about this big process of getting a whole animal and spitting it up and kind of <laughs> turning it really slowly or, or, you know, putting it in a massive smoker. This is about day-to-day, -day, like, making kebabs, making koftas, just putting your corn on, you know. You want to eat some corn, you put it on a barbecue and you grill it and you... You grill mushrooms and aubergines and everything. You know, it's just a way of cooking rather than... A special occasion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Sarit, from her background and me from mine, we love those grilling traditions of the Middle East, you know, the, the roasting lamb and aubergines and the tomatoes. This is the food that we really, really love. And so it was a real indulgence for us to do this book, just like it was an indulgence for us to do the restaurant, Honey and Smoke, because... This is the food that we want to cook. This is what we want to eat. And just going to the source of that impulse, let's say, and going to see it on the ground in Turkey, in, in Egypt, in Jordan, and see what people of the region are doing on their barbecues was just incredible for us. And, you know, if we can bring a smidgen of this back to the West, then, wow, what a thing to do. Let's talk about equipment. Um, you, in some of the pictures in the book, use that classic rectangular grill on legs. It's used in Mexico. It's used yeah. all over the Mediterranean. Could you just describe basic equipment? Uh, are you using wood? Are you using charcoal? What kind of grill do you use, et cetera? 
we use a very basic set of equipment. Actually, we don't even, equipment is not even that necessary. Basically, you need a place where you can put either wood or charcoal. We do tend to, to actually grill food on charcoal, smoke it on wood, uh, rather than do the full cooking on wood. And usually you need like a good grid, I think, or what you how would you call it in America? Grill grate. Yeah. Yeah, to, to sit on top of it. But that could be like in a in a fire pit in the ground or in just a regular square rectangle metal thing a couple of air holes because you've got to get some air circulation going but other than that i mean on this trip we cooked in a wheelbarrow (laughs) we We cooked in an abandoned sink we cooked in a barrel we cooked in a pit in the desert in uh, by the Uh, beach and the sand you know just anywhere really the idea is that if you can start a fire somewhere and you've got like a bag of charcoal or wood, then then you're good, you know. Yeah. All you need is is the simplest kind of metal square and a little bit of charcoal, and you can do magnificent things with it. Really, really delicious food. Do you think it's important to be able to vary the distance between the grill grate and the fire, or do you just adjust the fire? You just adjust the fire. I mean, if you can, if you have one of these that adjusts, amazing. Like, use it, definitely. But... We've kind of detached ourselves from what cooking used to be, which is adjusting and moving and learning and smelling. And, you know, the sight of things as they cook, they change. And it's just getting into the rhythm of it. And actually, when you eat a meal that you've cooked this way, you have this sense of pride that's happening with it as well and excitement because it's not about pressing one button that's done all the calculation for you on how you get that chicken out of the oven, perfectly roasted. Or, you know, we cook whole cabbages on the grill and they are delicious, you know? They're the, yeah, I saw that, yeah. The flavor that comes out of this thing and you think, oh my God, it's just a cabbage. What's And then you eat it and you are like, oh my God, I had never realized something could have so much flavor with so little intervention. You did something else here in the book, walk, cook tomatoes and onions. In fact, you, you grill tomatoes quite a lot mm-hmm. for salads and things. Yeah. That's not something mm-hmm. that... Um, we think about doing here. Could you just talk about that? So I think pretty much everywhere in the Middle East, if you go to any kebab shop, you will either get a skewer of tomatoes and onions, or if you'd order a meat skewer, there would be tomatoes and onions laced through it. And this is kind of like, almost like a vegetable side, but also a salad. Can't quite explain it, but very often it is the best bit. You know, it is... (laughs) Because you would, you know, maybe you take your meat off the skewer, you have your pita bread, you take the charred tomato, smush it on the bread, get your meat inside. If you have some tahina, you, you eat it with that. You know, vegetables on the grill are just something really, really special happen on really, really high heat. Well, you're also grilling peaches, you're grilling watermelon. I mean, let's talk about yeah. fruits. Yeah. Fruits, yeah. Uh, yeah. Pears. You know, everything like there's all these things. I think what we really wanted to showcase is that it's not just about taking a piece of meat and and putting it on fire. So it's not, you know, man, meat, fire thing. It's more about uh, intensifying flavors. So figs, figs on the fire are divine. You know, it just brings out the kind of honey sweetness of it. But also it's adding that extra element that the smoky, the, the char, it just lifts everything. And I think... We do use a lot of fruit in our salads and especially try to really take pride in something that's coming into season. So, you know, we get excited by peach season, by fig season and by watermelons and grilling watermelons. Oh, my God, it's it's a revelation. One of the best things you can do. It's amazing. Um, Southern Turkey. I mean, people here don't think much about Turkey being such a 
a varied place in terms of the food and the landscape. You said Southern Turkey was just amazing. Oh my I God. Mean, I mean, it should, all, it should be the biggest yeah. tourist destination of the world. Like, yeah. it's beautiful. So yeah, we were Southern Turkey kind of, um, I suppose not that far from the border with Syria. Uh, Northern Syria. Beautiful, mountainous, super, super fertile land. You know, there's just massive growth everywhere. So these rolling yeah, you hills. F- you feel like the, the, the earth is just like exploding with produce. Like even on traffic islands and by the side of the road, you'd see these citrus trees, like grapefruit trees with massive root, just almost mm. dripping down with goodness. Yeah. I mean, Turkey, is it's a huge country and so varied. And it's a country with a, you know, very proud food tradition, like on a par with the great food traditions of the world, you know, with French food and, and Japanese food. Sure. And where we've been in, in southern Turkey, in Gaziantep and Adana, you cannot describe the, the fruit, the vegetables, everything is just... The pistachios, you know, they yeah. have like... 200 grades of pistachios <laughs> and the stuff that we eat in the UK and think oh these are nice pistachios they wouldn't even Donkey consider yeah, yeah they wouldn't consider right. cooking with them because they are too they're like a grade that is just for export they would not bother eating them yeah. we were lucky also to be there uh, during Ramadan which is just an explosion of excitement because come nightfall these restaurants come to life in You've never seen anything like it. I mean, these grills, first of all, they're like a mile long. Yeah. But they're, a whole side of a restaurant is a grill, like a massive grill. It's blazing with this glorious fire. And everyone wants to eat at once because they've been fasting all day. And there's like hundreds of skewers going on. It's, um, it's yeah, really amazing. Magical, magical. You mentioned uh, this three-legged cast iron pot from Africa. A poike. Yeah. Uh, and you said it's now getting very popular in Israel. Could you explain it? Because that's something that we don't ever do here. Have you not got poikas? Have they not come? I think it's, it no. might be the, the next big craze in America because basically it's it's like a, I suppose, like a Dutch oven on legs. If right. you, it looks if like you, a witch's cauldron. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I never thought yeah. about that. Like a witch's cauldron. Three a very really, small witch. Yeah, yeah a small yeah. witch and a small Tiny cauldron. witch, yeah. But three very thin, uh, spiky legs, big bulbous pot on top from cast iron, really heavy. And you put that on a fire pit. And it's a a really great way to slow cook things in their own juices. So you're adding very little water, really. Uh, But it just traps everything in there. And the flavors are just so intense. You you did a lot of traveling for this book, yeah. uh, Chasing Smoke. Was this a, a pilgrimage of sorts? It was a pilgrimage in sorts. You know, we have these memories of, of childhood where you've done a day trip and you're, you know, you're hungry and it's the end and you look for this whiff of smoke because you know that behind that whiff of smoke is something delicious. So that was kind of in our minds. It's like, let's look for that whiff of smoke because there's always something good at the end of that. For me, it's it's going to sound super cheesy, but, you know... You need to end with a little bit of cheese, don't you? <laughs> but we we were traipsing around the region and we were very brazen in how we went into people's kitchens and how we tried everything and how we kind of, you know, we, we would go to a restaurant and go straight in the kitchen. I mean, we don't do it in our normal everyday life. Um, and we wouldn't be very sympathetic if someone did it in our restaurant. But I can't tell you of one occasion that we were met with anything but 
complete and utter hospitality, hmm. generosity, friendliness. When you were curious about someone's food, they don't hold back. They want to share. You know, they feel right. respected and and they give you so much. And I, I think it's it's a really kind of life affirming experience for me. Sarit Itamar, thank you so much uh, for being on Milk Street. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. The pleasure was all ours. It's been a pleasure for us. Thank you so much for having us. That was Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulovich. Their book is Chasing Smoke, Cooking Over Fire Around the Levant. Most of us fire up the grill in the backyard to cook meat, but other people in the world think of grilling as an opportunity to cook virtually everything from eggs to eggplant and sweet potatoes to peaches, from watermelon to lettuce. And instead of using 500-hour grills, cooks around the world turn to holes in the ground or maybe even wheelbarrows. So it's a pretty good reminder that you don't need stuff to cook, you just need fire. You're listening to a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we share another point of view. Dan Pashman says grilling is overrated. That's in just a moment. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and this is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's regular contributor and troublemaker, Dan Pashman. Dan, what are you thinking about this week? Well, Chris, I got a bit of a bee in my bonnet this week. <laughs> I am frustrated, I will tell you, because, you know, this is the time of year when everybody's grilling, but I think grilling has gotten out of control. I am tired of all these social media posts did you know you could grill chocolate chip cookies? You can grill watermelon. You can grill pizza. I mean, not every food is better grilled, okay? I'm here to say, Chris, that we are grilling too many foods. Okay, this is this is positively un-American, so I, I'm going to let you... <laughs> you're on an island by yourself on this one, pal. <laughs> Look, I mean, I love grilling. It's very fun and pleasurable, but... Um, I think there's a fetishization that is happening with grilling. And as soon as you say, you can, did you know you can grill X? It gets a bunch of clicks on the internets and the kids go crazy for it. And so people keep creating these recipes. But why is it better? That's really my point. Like a lot of these foods, sure, I guess char marks look nice, but a, a grill has a limited amount of surface area. If you start trying to grill 10 different things for a meal, all of a sudden you're spending hours laboring over this hot flaming grill that's not a fun place to be. And a lot of times I think the results are like, much, you know, like a grill is not, it's it's pleasurable to cook on, but you don't have a whole lot of control over the temperature. It's not a very precise device. So I think there's a lot of romanticism around grilling. Oh boy, you're in, you're in just, <laughs> you, you are in so much trouble. First of all, grilled pizza. I make grilled pizza all the time. It is so much better than oven pizza because it gets, it cooks in about two or three minutes. It's very hot. It bubbles up. It's, it's just fabulous. Secondly, you don't have to clean up inside. That's the whole point, right? I mean, you cook on a grill and it's done. There are no pots to clean. There's no stove to clean. So that's that's a number two. And number three, there is a fair amount of control. I mean, if you have a gas you know, grill, which I know some people don't like, but there's quite a lot of control because you have three or four burners, depending, and uh, you can set it up any way you like. So I don't know, three strikes, you're out? Does that, does that make sense here? I mean, what? look, the, you're, I will grant you the point about the dishes. That is a very good point. I'll give you that one. Yeah. But I, I, I guess what I object to is that it feels like a gimmick, a culinary gimmick created for the social media age because it's the kind of thing that, that seems new and different and people will click on it. And I, yeah. I just think, like, look, cooking over an open fire is the oldest type of cooking. If there's a food that is best cooked over an open fire, I think we would have discovered it by now. We don't need all the recipe testers of the internet to go out and try to grill outlandish things so that they can get more clicks. That is really my frustration. Like, 
grilled corn. Like I feel like grilled corn is a big pain. And oftentimes it gets it overcooked and the, the kernels all shrivel. We're letting form come over function because these the char marks often are a sign of something not being cooked as well as it could have been cooked. Well, you got me on that one because years ago uh, we used to do these pig roasts in August in Vermont. And I, I was in charge what one year of, of the – actually it was a heifer that we cooked, but it was a beef roast. But I did the corn and I decided to do it over the coals. Everyone hated it. And, and you know why? Because it was dried out. So the following year, I boiled it like I should have, and everyone loved it. So I, I think grilled corn, unless you do it just right, you have to soak it, uh, leave one of the layers of the leaves on, on it when you do it. it. It can be good, but it is pretty dicey, I agree. All right. See, we're, we're, we're coming to a middle ground. Have you ever tried cooler corn? What's cooler corn? Uh, cooler corn is great when you're when you're hosting a barbecue. You shuck the corn, you put it into a cooler, you fill the cooler with boiling water, just enough to cover the corn. You don't need to fill it at the top. Close the cooler, let it sit for 30 minutes, and then drain out the hot water from the tap on the bottom, and the, the corn is cooked. And if you keep the cooler closed, the corn will stay warm. So you can do it in advance, and um, you can do a whole bunch at once, and it takes you about 10 minutes. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm playing psychiatrist now. There is something that's bothering you. You saw a social media post that offered to grill something you thought was insane and upsetting. So what, what was the thing that really set you off? I'm glad you brought this up, Chris. <laughs> I know this is deep. I don't know that it was something that I saw, but I think you're probably right that I have been scarred by the experience of trying to grill too many things. And it's, it's very stressful. And I usually end up burning something. And I think it left its own sort of char mark on my soul. So in other words, fear of public failure and a hot day in front of a grill is what it is. Well, the only thing I would say in closing is one of the great things about a grill is you can cook, let's say, a thin piece of meat quickly over high heat. And then as the fire dies down a little bit, you can take a whole bunch of vegetables, which you don't have to serve right away, and cook them on the grill. And then you have them for the rest of the week. So I, I, I like the what you do after the initial cooking. You have all that heat. And if you use it intelligently, actually, it's a very economical way of getting a lot of food cooked at once. I can see that. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. I, I just think, I think for me, what I've decided is that when I'm grilling, I want to grill one thing. Grill one thing grill it really well, make it just right. And don't try to grill your entire meal, appetizer, entree, and dessert because you'll drive yourself crazy. Well, actually, I did once grill a cake. <laughs> oh, no. I was in a hurricane on the Cape. There was no power. Way to bury the lead, Chris. No, I, and I, uh, I I got a nice low fire, and I had a pretty successful, it was a blueberry buckle, actually, but uh, turned out okay. Well, Dan Pashman, maybe your bumper sticker should be grill one thing. Uh, that's pretty good. All right. I'll go, I appreciate I'll, it, Chris. I'll, go with that. Uh, I'll, I'll keep an eye out in the mail for that bumper sticker. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Take it easy. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sparkful Food Podcast. You know, I have a question about the Weber Grill. I do know that historically it was made for the bottom half of a buoy. I know that the inventor, George Stevens, drilled holes in the top to improve the airflow. So far, so good. But what I don't understand is why the distance between the grate and the grill is fixed. Yeah, you can pile up coals or make a two-level fire, even put bricks under the grate, but you still can't raise or lower the cooking surface. 
The Mini Cooper, by comparison, has 16 different models, 11 colors, 12 wheel designs, 7 seat coverings, and 5 trim options. You get the idea. So maybe Weber knows something the rest of us just don't. Keep it simple. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get full digital access to all of our recipes and cooking classes, plus free standard shipping from the Milk Street store. We're on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet, on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. Thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.